everyone and welcome to the latest uh, Scots Way Hay podcast and it's a podcast of two parts. In the second part you'll be hearing some readings from Out There, the anthology of LGBT writing that came out at the end of last year. And for just now we're going to talk to the editor of that anthology, Zoe Strachan. Hello Zoe. Hello Alistair, it's very nice to be here. And I think we're going to start by talking a little bit about the inspiration behind the anthology. Because um, you, correct me if I'm wrong, seem to be the kind of driving force about getting it all together. Yeah, it's been a bit of a labour of love for me. It's something I've been interested in doing for quite a long time. And I suppose the roots of it come in early reading experiences when I was growing up, the looking out for that kind of representation of LGBT characters, which... When I was a teenager, I did find in the library, but I found them in books like A Boy's Own Story by Edmund White. I found them in 19th century French novels. Um, and I certainly didn't find them in a Scottish context at all until much, I mean, they weren't totally not there, but it took me a very long time to come across yeah. them. Um, and by the time I was a student, or a little bit, I suppose it had been published in the late 80s, Tony Davidson's anthology and Thus Will I Freely Sing had come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just came across it really by chance in the library and thought, oh my goodness, here we go. There are people in Scotland who are writing these things, who are creating these characters, yeah. or who are expressing their own identity in, in non-fiction pieces. Um, and after that, there was a book called The Crazy Jig that Joanne Winning edited in, I think, 92. And then later on... Um, a book edited by Joseph Mills that was about LGBT characters, but not so much about LGBT authors. So I felt there had been a bit of a gap for a while, and, and I became interested in doing something about it, mainly because I'd done an event at the Alapool Book Festival, mm-hmm. and I was reading from my then work in progress, a novel called Ever Fallen in Love, which has a the, the protagonist is gay. And we had a big discussion about where were gay characters? Why were there more out lesbian authors in Scotland mm-hmm. who are really well known? Val McDermott, Ali Smith, um, Jackie Kay, Carol Ann Duffy, yeah. you know, people who are, um, you know, have done a, such a huge amount for the, the visibility of, of LGBT writing and LGBT characters as well. But there didn't seem to be a commensurate amount of male writers yeah. who were out and creating these characters. And we're chatting about this, you know, a lovely discussion, typical Olapool, very warm, very open. Um, and I said in a, in a kind of fit of enthusiasm, that's it, I'll, I'll definitely do this. I've wanted to do this anthology, I'll definitely do it. Um, so off I went and wrote up a proposal and pitched it to a publisher uh-huh. who said, that's lovely, that's a really lovely idea. That's not very commercial. <laughs> I thought, okay, okay. Um, and I kind of tried, um, I mean, I didn't punt it around a lot, but I did, I, I sort of investigated it and, you know, was getting the, the typical response, which is understandable that anthologies don't sell, it's taking a bit of a risk. Mm, okay. There you go. Um, but I never quite let it lie. I always thought, this is something I'll come back to, I'll, I'll get this off the ground eventually. And then. Um, when it did happen, it happened very quickly. I'd mentioned it in passing to Adrian Serrell at Freight, yep. and he said, oh, actually, I think we could do that. And then <laughs> I saw an advert for um, from LGBT History Month who were giving cultural commission grants, and I thought, mm-hmm. and it was like the day before the deadline that I saw it, and I thought, oh, no, you know, but I stuck in an application straight away, got the funding, Freight were up for it, um, and then just powered through, wrote to every author I knew, um, tried to get a call for open submissions disseminated as widely as possible. 
and got a really lovely response. Every single author that I wrote to got back to me promptly and enthusiastically and they all sent me some work. Yeah. One author didn't only because he wasn't writing, he was concentrating on music. Everyone else straight back, um, really supportive and that was so reassuring because I thought actually this isn't something that's outdated and unnecessary yeah. anymore these authors want to support it and want to put work into it although they've all got, you know, the, the people I was approaching in the first instance have you know, have very successful careers sure. and don't need to be supporting a, you know, a wee anthology but they, they really did and so they the, sent me good work as well Yeah, absolutely and that, the response I suppose confirmed the kind of reason for doing it in the first place yeah yeah it did um and the response from new writers too, getting submissions from writers that i'd certainly never heard of you know even through my experience of editing new writing scotland for the the past three years people who maybe hadn't sent their work out before at all um so it's actually i mean quite in a way quite an emotional editing process my criteria would you know only I suppose I only really had one condition that I wanted the work to be I wanted the work to be good. It didn't have to reflect gay lives or gay themes. Yeah. It just had to be the author had to identify as um Scottish and LGBT, but otherwise I just wanted good work. And everything I got was was eliminating in some way or another. You yeah. know, some pieces were clearly maybe the first thing that somebody had written, very personal, very, very moving, some of them. Um, very funny and very explicit others um, I have to say Um, uh, but again is that an uncut version is that what you're saying yes that's that's what I'm thinking there might be um, we could have done a follow up kind of Fifty Shades of Queer Um, but uh, but again that that was reassuring too that people wanted to send their work to this and often with nice covering letters saying I'm glad this is happening you know I'm excited about this so that kind of support was very helpful because it's you know it's a big project and you're you're doing a lot of reading there's a lot of kind of organizing um and freight were very good about all of that but um but it helped to have the the enthusiasm from potential readers as well as writers there i have spoken to at least two people who said that that they've been moved to write the first not the first thing they'd written but the first thing they'd actually sent in you know, um, so that in itself, I think, you know, uh, oh, if, you, that's if that great. has any, you know, effect down the line that someone actually puts yeah. paint to paper or whatever the equivalent is these days. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about the wider reception of it? In a way, compared to how you would, um, the, you know, you, in the, your forward to the book, you say you found Tony Davidson's book kind of hidden away in the light, not hidden away in the light, mm-hmm. but, you know, it was a book that you didn't know about yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think the reception of out there would be different to how Tony's book was back in the day? I wonder. I mean, it's it's hard to tell because I don't know how that was received at the time. You know, I know it's... I've spoken to a lot of people that it's meant a lot to mm. personally. Um, I've been very pleased with the response to out there, um, the Scots Way Review amongst it, um, which was very, very, very heartening. I guess I had a bit of a fear that people would say, well, so what? Or why are you doing this in the 21st mm-hmm. century? Is it necessary? Um, and I thought it was. And I, you know, I was certainly sort of prepared to get the gloves off and defend yeah. it. But I'm pleased that people actually embraced it and said, this is interesting. There are things here that are different from anthologies that were published 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. We're seeing different representations, different lives. Um, things that 
that just didn't particularly seem to happen in literature very much, you know, whether that's talking about LGBT couples that are older, mm-hmm. civil partnered, um, or people for whom it's only one facet of their identity and it's not actually part of the story at all, and they yeah. just happen to be gay. Um, lots of different things that I felt that I hadn't, I hadn't quite seen this in writing before, so I think the contributors did a really, really good job. I think the impressive thing is the breadth of um, experience that's in the in the book, as you say, from all ages, from all backgrounds, it's just, you know, an anthology of different people that happens to be collected under the LGBT um, banner, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And the readings that we have later on are from the, it was at the launch of LGBT History Month. Yes. Um, and certainly everyone that was at that seemed to, uh, you know, just be absolutely heartened that this anthology was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting, I think, looking at the history of, uh, of the anthologies, if you like, um, that Scotland was perhaps seen as different to the rest of the UK in the way that it um, portrayed um, gay characters. Do you think that's fair? Um, I know you wrote you wrote an essay back in 1999. Yeah. Which, but I think going back to what people have written years ago, but it was a really interesting essay, and it looked at just that how gay characters were portrayed in contemporary yeah. Scottish literature. Um, do you think that's changed? I think it's changing. Um, I, I think it's changing. I think there are things that have been missing for particular reasons. And one of those reasons, you know, I suppose there's two sides to two sides to every story. Um, I think class is a factor mm-hmm. um, in terms of what people have been able to write at particular points. And Scotland is lucky to have such a vibrant tradition of working class writing Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there's points where that maybe hasn't been quite in a position to include LGBT representations Mm -hmm. in the past or there have been other you know and you could say the same for feminist writing and you know and other things and writing by authors of of colour you know sometimes it seems as though the kind of culture of reception can only take one perceived minority, even if it's actually a, a majority at the at one time. Um, so I, I, I do think that it's I do think it's changing, maybe not quite as quickly as I might have assumed. Yeah, you know, I think things have changed a lot socially, equal marriage, all of those things, but we've got you know we still we've got these top notch out gay male mm-hmm. Scottish writers Christopher White, Ronald Frame um, and others but we don't have somebody you know we don't have somebody who's you know sort of Val McDermott level of sales yeah. and profile and I wonder why that is is it just chance is it what they're writing or is there still a bit of a yeah, a I was, barrier I to was that? thinking about that and just in terms of um, the way that Scotland has an incredible range of women's writers mm-hmm. and for a while that just wasn't the case yeah, yeah. and absolutely you know it's, it's just flipped in its head and whether that is just chance whether it's um a well i don't know what's your thoughts on, on that well there's there's also that thought that maybe people were always writing and not getting published yeah. and we do still discover women writers that absolutely. have been just sort of awfully neglected um in the past for various reasons um, and that discussion at Ullapool, certainly one of the questions was, you know, just, just 
do these things exist and they just weren't published and I thought well probably I can't imagine there weren't men who were writing this stuff really through Mm -hmm. the centuries but maybe hiding it away or burning it or you know or whatever for for fear of being discovered well I think in terms of Scottish writing and it's something that Christopher White talked about in Gendering the Nation Mm. his his book um, looking at, at Scottish literature was that Scottish literature in particular, but many aspects of Scotland, were so uh, obsessed with defending its Scottishness or its right to exist that areas of it, you know, it became just one homogenous thing rather than the subtleties that you saw in other literature. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And I think Joanne Winning um, comments on that in an essay that I think was in the Edinburgh Companion to Contemporary Scottish Literature, just that... I suppose that there becomes a dominant agenda and again for good and bad reasons mm-hmm. that's the thing that people are driving towards um, and it seems that there isn't quite space in that for all the other facets of identity um, that might be you know it's I suppose we've all got a Venn diagram we're not only one thing at no, once exactly. we you know we overlap and actually I think that a lot of the a lot of the referendum debates were very positive about that and actually um, in terms of legal steps forward and social justice, I think Scotland has come a long way very quickly. Um, and it seems that people in Scotland, it's, if you can go by polls, have changed their mind about things really quite quickly and um, you know what might have been quite conservative or you know religiously driven before actually has has moved forward. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do without there was include these little bookend essays by Bertolt Schoen, the um, the critic, and Jeff Meek, the historian, mm-hmm. just to give the work a little bit of a wider context. What had happened before? What's the legal background that that maybe prevented things being published and that makes things different now? Um. um. And I think that's actually quite exciting to think that there might be undiscovered writers out there yeah. or from the past that we just, you know, haven't been discovered yeah. yet. Um, I think the context, you talked about the, putting the book in context and again, that's one of the really um, interesting things about it. You have these essays that bookend them mm-hmm. and you also have the um, writer's biographies are more than the normal. Yeah. Was that yeah. a take that was a deliberate step? Yeah, I wanted to, I mean, I didn't want to enforce that on people, you know, <laughs> if they don't want to talk about their, their sexuality, it's fine. But I was interested because I think that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask. Does does this affect what you write? Because, I mean, if I think of myself as a writer, it definitely does. It's really it's really of vital importance, you know, whether it becomes obvious in a piece or or not, whether it's an overt theme or not, I know it's part of what kind of drives me and it's Mm -hmm. reflected in different ways. Um, And I guess out of personal nosiness as as well as thinking (laughs) that it might eliminate things for others, I I wanted to give people the opportunity to say that. Um, And I think some of the comments there are really lovely and interesting. You know, Ronald Frames says a great thing about, you know, you're always becoming somebody else on the page. Yeah. You know, um, and Ali Smith's got a lovely, in a way, sort of typical thing about um, the the difficulties of writing and then that it's it's sort of further but delightfully complicated by identity in, in different ways. So, yeah, I, I thought that was an... I, I'm glad that that... Or I hope that that's sort of worked or that people get something out of reading those yes, biographies I mean, I rather it, than it just being, you know, that, uh, born I mean, in, <laughs> likes cats. 
Um, I think it does. I think it works well with the pieces. You know, I mean, some people have obviously embraced it more than others. Um, but Paul Brownsy says an interesting thing. I think he says until people stop asking why he has gay characters, it's still going to remain an issue. Is that yeah. something that you agree with? I think so. Yes. Um, and again. One of the really nice things about Out There is that we've had quite a lot of events and last night we had an event for LGBT History Month in Waterstones in Edinburgh and the discussion there was interesting because I think there there is a split in the LGBT community and I use that word advisedly because I think it's, it's a kind of tricky one to, to use at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who want all these things equal you know of course who's going to say that equal marriage is a bad thing but in the discussion last night there were a lot of people in the audience who were saying but we are different we do have a different Mm -hmm. identity that is forged through our experience and who we are and different things and we should think of ways of holding on to that rather than actually being subsumed in this you know kind of Again, in a way, it's you know, everyone it's being the same, everyone which everyone being the, isn't same. the same. Yeah, yeah, and everyone isn't. And it's and I find that a, a really difficult question to answer myself because I've spent my life thinking, oh, I can't wait till we get to this point, as Paul says, you know, where we don't have to label everything. Um, but actually then I think, hmm, but you can't make everything, you can't kind of bland everything out either um, because there's a bit of social control in that and the here we go, get married, adopt children or yeah. whatever, you know. I guess people... It, it should be everyone should be allowed to celebrate who they are instead of having to defend who yeah, they are. Which exactly, is what exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the how did you go about deciding who was going to be in it? I mean, there is a nice balance between some very well-known names mm-hmm. and people I'd never, you know, I think as I say, maybe written for the first time. Yeah. How did you decide that, or did you just go on the quality of the work? Well. I made a sort of wish list of the people that, I mean, a lot of them people who'd been really important to me as writers um, and whose work I'd really liked. And I think people who've just done such tremendous things for Scottish writing and LGBT writing. So that's your kind of, you know, Christopher White, Jackie Kay, Ali Smith, Val, McDermott, um, these people. And I wrote to them directly and said, will you you know will you send me a piece and then for the open submissions I thought just one as as much as possible to choose from and we got a lot you know we did get uh, you know we did get hundreds of pieces probably you know you know um just fewer contributors you know a couple of people that you know sent a few things and for that I just went on the quality of the yeah. writing and there were a lot of people that I really wanted to submit as well, you know, and maybe kind of gave a nod to and said, please send me something. And sometimes I included the pieces, sometimes I didn't, which is always the the difficult thing about being an editor, as you know, that um, mm-hmm. that in the end you, you have to make some tough you choices. have to make some tough calls. And although you're going for excellence of writing, sometimes you want a little bit of diversity of, you know, of theme or subject and a balance of poetry and prose sure. and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, so there were some really hard choices, you know, that I think you always think it's going to be tremendous fun editing something, but then you end up at that point where you've got 10 pieces that you really, really like in front of you and there's only space in the book for five of them. And, you know, those are tough calls and I had to just sort of keep putting them aside, sleeping on it, figuring out what I thought was the most memorable piece um, that that really stayed with me. But I'm really pleased with what's in there, you know, yeah. I think I... 
I think for me I made the right choices and I hope that there are pieces that speak to different people in different ways um, you know that there, there is a range of work um, yeah so it's yeah, it's it's always hard editing, but I was lucky to have good stuff to be choosing from. You were told um, early on that anthologies weren't um, commercial. Mm-hmm. It strikes me, you know, there's been a few um, events off the back of out there already. Yeah. And this, a book like this will hopefully have a long life because yeah. of that. I mean, you can do, you know, events with different readers and... Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've been... You know, we've really, you know, we've been doing events since before the the book came out. We did um, things in Pride House and the Commonwealth Games, had a really successful event there. Um, and hopefully it will be used. You know, I think the Association with LGBT History Month is great because yeah. it's something that can be brought out in different ways and used in workshops and taken into schools. Maybe not all of the pieces, but, <laughs> you know, a good number of them. Um, that, that sort of thing. So they're they're a good support in terms of using it as something that can raise awareness and you know have a have an educational side in some in some ways too. I think that's what literature does prob- possibly better than any other art form mm-hmm. is that people if they hear a story that they can identify with mm-hmm. or a poem that they can identify with it can inspire them to think well one uh, I'm not alone here but also yeah. then I can go and express who I am as well. Yeah exactly and that's that's what you hope too because you know, we talk about things changing, but again, one of the things that's come out in just about all the events, there's been someone there who maybe works with, you know, does youth work or something like that and says, gives you the grimmer side of the sure. the story. And that is the, you know, you know, I remember being that kind of teenager where you're looking in the library and you're just, you know, desperate to find something that that sort of says, this happens, this is fine, here you go. Um, and you know you've got television you've got internet you've got much more representation than there ever was before but there's still something about having it in the pages of a book I think and hopefully it's just as as well as that hopefully it's just a good read for anyone no matter what their sexual identity it's a fantastic read there's some incredibly moving and as you say very funny all life is there yeah yeah. um, now that you've done one Ten years down the line, would you do another? Or? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> now you're asking. Um, oh, I don't know. I suppose it'll depend what happens in the yeah. interim. Um, it was quite interesting to do it alongside the referendum and thinking about identity in these ways. So, who knows? Maybe I'll hold off, see if there's another referendum. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. That would be a good, timely thing. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you. And um, you're going to now hear some readings from out there, and we'll be with you very soon.
They're called Douglas and Mark, and Mrs. Anderson says they're civil partners. Isn't it exciting? They bought the house at the top of the brain. Douglas is a musician, and Mark is a Canadian. <laughs> a professional Canadian? Well, I think it's great, stimulating, by the time we've caught up with the modern world. What about me? I say. I've been here for years. Until Hilda shakes her head and gives a little laugh, almost says something. I can tell by the way she spins away to deadhead the daffodils that she is embarrassed. Hilda has forgotten that I am one of them. Or maybe she thinks lesbians don't really count, buggery being so much more vivid. Or could it be that I don't count because I'm on my own? If you don't have sex with anyone, maybe your orientation becomes academic, like Middle English, fallen out of use. I pull the cord, quick as I can, the mower farts and dies. I live here now, in a village at the head of a lock, encircled by hills. I ran from the city and a bad relationship that took Houdini's skills to escape. My first priority was to be unseen, and I found a cottage with high hedging and so only got to know the populace gradually. They are discreet, wholly Caucasian, unanimously straight, as far as I can tell. I never lied about myself. I made the effort to come out early and come out often. It's Mrs. actually. And my former partner, she always, she never. First Christmas, my immediate neighbors asked me to a drinks party. It was mostly their retiree friends, bridge players and golf enthusiasts. We drank gin and tonics and ate cheese footballs. Men wore blazers with shiny buttons. The kind of gathering that in my old life would have passed as a retro theme party. I was pushing my chit-chat about when a woman in a gathered skirt and spangly cardigan said to me, And what did your husband do? First question, not my name or dwelling place or even my own job. I don't have a husband. I said it with too much volume, too much velocity. We stared at each other, silence spreading thick. But you do get worn down. When a plumber or bank teller calls me Mrs. Cairns now, I let it go. Tell myself it's just a honorific like Madame. And you know, here in the Outlands of Middle Age, we women start to converge. I become Mrs. wear the odd floral pattern. They cut their hair shorter, wear lower shoes. We can see each other well enough, but in the eyes of men and the young, we miss and we blur. I still love it that no windows look into my windows. No footsteps squeak over my head. No troubling screams break the night by the owls and foxes. But I find that the more space and silence I created, the louder grew the voice of me, prattling away in my head, by turns dull and neurotic, no getting away from her. I took up gardening work to root myself in something. Trite, true. I had genteel clients like Hilda Trench and Delphine McCune, and Dr. Fowler's Ian and Jan. Eccentric people with rhododendron wind gardens and ramshackle Victorian villas the kind of Scottish houses once run by cheap servants. Pinterest boards on shabby sheep have nothing to teach these people. They deeply understand the expressive pointillism of mould, 
the sun tattered curtain on the dwindling of peeling wallpaper. As I travel my route of mossy lawns and knotweed lime burns, people tell me news of the boys. They have thrown themselves into village life, I hear. Douglas is giving free fiddle lessons to the primary school kids, and Mark the Canadian has been prominent in the campaign to keep them life at the open. One bright evening, I'm driving along the single track road that brings the far side of the lock. When I see them out walking together, Douglas, dark and stoutish in a mossy green tweed jacket, Mark, slim and dressed in jeans and thick jumper. Between them, a red setter strains at the lead, a shine like water running over her coat. I slow the van and start to edge past, rolling down my window. Lovely evening, I call. They agree and we move past. I want to say more than that. I want to give them the secret sign that I am not like the others. I stop the car and look at them in the window. They keep walking away into the low sun of their beautiful dog. They don't notice I've stopped. I switch my eyes to the shapes that the wind makes on the surface of the law.
simplicity, their clearer simplicity, communicate with each other through a wall, through a little chink or hole in the wall. Uh, so this poem is, is full of the language of that play. And there's also a memory of seeing a wonderful exhibition by David Hopkins, um, which in which there's a, a painting, a portrait of Christopher Bishop and his partner Don McCarty uh, in, in Malibu, California. And to me, they, they, they represented, I suppose, a kind of liberty, a kind of freedom that just wasn't available to us then. So this poem is called The Wall. Look at the wall, the sweet and lovely wall we carry with us in public places. Even in meadows when we rest it for a second on muscular buttercups, its tininess glimpsed from the distances of outer galaxies is not as small as the monstrous little voice I used to whisper to you through its chink. And in the streets of Glasgow, where we set it down despite the looks to share affection over lattes and Versace suits, we can hear the awkward avalanche of lime and mortar evolve within its frame as we kneel down and seek out chink and speak our cherry words knit up in air and stone. Even here, on Pear Blossom Highway or Gallery Hill, where you can barely see it for the hockney colours and sentimentalists mistake it for a rainbow, it is a wall that bears our motto's restraint. And in the Japanese storyboard of Chris and Don's Malibu interior, where even the wicker chairs are clearly gay, at ease with their own maturity. Wall balances between the pockets of our cargo pants as we meander through, fearful of pratfall, putty on the pinewood floor. Some say chick offer us the virtue of tourist perspective, the silk forest of your earlobes, blonde, still baby hairs. Polaroided and collaged in a cakewalk of mismatching edges, our groins grow wall, exciting textures of the stripe but no one ever asks us what it weighs. Others tell us to ignore it, drape our bodies in a magnetic web of invisible embraces, a shimmering virtual cloth of Christian complexity, beyond the deconstructive powers of Peter Quince. We touch our asses' heads like cats, pick up our wall and walk. True, Chink's lynx eye offers us a precious parsimony of moments. The time the slips of our lapels smile to fill the whole of that slim orifice. The time your pink, your pinky stroke the whisker of my orange tawny beard, my purple and grain beard, my French crown colour beard, and no one noticed. But those who see our wall and label it know about its chink as well, the slight pucker of its lips, which taste of cold, chipped tile. Name it only for the fuckhole of Bully Bottom's root mechanicals. Everywhere we turn, we find out moonshine. Smash wall. Smash the person of wall and the person of pure moonshine. Thank you.
recording this, and if you've not come across their their website yet, um, I encourage you to to have a wee look into it. You'll find lots of recordings and blogs about uh, Scottish literature, Scottish music, past and present. This is uh, the face of the window, the wave of the hand. Fiona glanced across Grosvenor Gardens at her apartment. I always look up at the window of our lounge when I reach the gardens, she told the policeman later. I'm not sure why. Habit, I suppose. But it was more than habit. It was the satisfaction of reaching home, the satisfaction of living in Edinburgh's West End, the sight of their flat waiting for her on the other side of the gardens that separated Grosvenor Crescent from its not quite mirror image, Lansdowne Crescent. She had walked from Haymarket Station, a canvas bag advertising the Edinburgh Book Festival full of groceries, her messages slung over her right shoulder, her briefcase containing her tablet and the spreadsheet she would work on that evening weighing down her left. This time next year, Fiona thought, I will be burdened with work. And she felt a quick rush of excitement that could have been mistaken for fear. There was a steak in Fiona's bag which she intended to cook with mushrooms, red wine and shallots for Margaret and her to share. They would eat it with the cold boiled potatoes left over from the night before. Fiona wondered if Margaret had used all of the shallots and decided that if she had, they would just have to do without. It was only Wednesday, but she was Friday night tired. There was a headache threatening at the back of her eyes. If Margaret wanted innings, she could get them herself. Fiona paused midway along Lansdowne Crescent and looked with satisfaction at the apple blossom on the trees, the branches nodding up the railings of Grosvenor Crescent. Too long, she supposed, but a shame to get them trimmed now when they looked so pretty. One white and two pink, like a bride with her bridesmaid, Fiona thought, not for the first time. And she unconsciously bent her fingers so she could feel the pressure of her wedding band. That was when she looked up at the top floor window of the converted townhouse where she and Margaret lived and saw the face at the window. The face was a quick white presence. A hand gave a chin wave and then the intruder turned and vanished into the darkness of the room beyond. Later, when Margaret asked why she hadn't waited for the police to arrive, Fiona said, you know how slow the Edinburgh police are. But the truth was, although she dialed 999, asked for police, please, and gave the operator her name and address, the thought of waiting did not cross Fiona's mind. She didn't think of it at all. It was only chance that Paul on the ground floor was leaving his flat at that moment, tousle-haired and puffy-eyed, like the cartoon of a man suffering from yet another hangover. The two households had been on frosty terms since Paul's friends had spilled out into Grosvenor Gardens in the early hours of St Andrew's Day and let off a volley of fireworks to shouts of, On your cell, Abby! As Margaret had remarked later to Murdo and Grant, occupants of the middle landing, we were in such a state they didn't know their birds might be missing Andrew's day. 
Fiona put a hand on Paul's elbow, steering him towards the stairs in what he later described to Jackie the barman as a neat dance move I wouldn't have thought the old girl had in her. There's an intruder in my house, Fiona said. Are you sure it's your friend, Dr. Gupta? I think I would recognise my own wife, Paul. This person is as white as I am. Whiter. Paul took out his iPhone and jabbed at the buttons, but Fiona put a hand over his. I've already phoned the police. Would you like me to wait until they get here, Paul said, risking a flat resistant urge to look at his watch. There was a straightener with his name on it waiting at the Cambridge bar. But as he told Jackie later, the old bird took a bit green about the gills, and he wasn't sure she should be left alone. It was on the tip of Fiona's tongue to ask Paul if he was a man or a mouse, but she sensed the question would be counterproductive. We could wait all day on the police while whoever it is takes the place apart. Fiona's fingers tightened on Paul's arm. Do you have a baseball bat? No, Paul said. Football's my game. Five aside to the lads every Sunday afternoon. A football's not much of a weapon. What about golf club? My old man was mad keen on golf, Paul said. It kind of put me off. Useless. Fiona jogged up the stairs to the door of her apartment, and after a moment's hesitation, Paul followed her. He whispered, I really think we should wait for the... But Fiona had already unlocked the door and stepped into the apartment, and Paul's only option was to wait outside like a coward or follow her inside. They've got a nice place up there, he told Jackie the barman later. Lots of storage space, nice and clean too, no strip under the beds. Ask me how I know that. Jackie obliged and Paul said, because we checked every nook and cranny of that flat. We looked in every cupboard big enough to hold a trained monkey and a few that weren't. Do you know what we found? Nada, nothing, not a soul. There was nobody there. There was somebody there, Fiona said. She was too shaken to cook the steak, and so Margaret made it, trimming the fat before she put it on the griddle, a little calorie tactic that Fiona thought spoiled the flavour. The policeman treated me like I was an idiot, and as for that waste of space, Paul on the ground floor, I wish you'd have violent heat. Margaret laughed, her forehead creased with concern. Thank goodness all went with you. Imagine if there really had been someone there. There was somebody there. The second time, Fiona saw the face at the window, the hand raised in a cheap wave. She didn't bother to call the police at all or knock on neighbours' doors. She took the stairs two at a time, her heart hammering as if it was trying to escape her chest. Fiona unlocked the door of the apartment behind her so that the intruder could not escape and went swiftly from one empty room to the other. There's no point in hiding, Fiona shouted. But although she spent the next hour searching, she found nobody. September stripped the leaves from the trees in Roanoke Gardens, and October hardened the ground, strangling the last of the flowers. Fiona and Margaret strolled along Lansdowne Crescent, arm in arm, swathed in winter coats. I hate this time of year. Margaret's voice was muffled by the scarf wrapped around the lower half of her face. 
Your color. Everything dead. Your coat is pretty bright, Fiona teased. Her hair, her hat was pulled low over her eyes, but the cold air was piling a little sharp and her sinuses stung. Anyway, I like the winter. No life without death. And it means we can light a nice farm when we get in. She glanced up at the front, and then suddenly she was running. This time, Fiona had almost been able to make out the features of the person waiting from the window. It was someone she had met before, she was sure of it. She tore off her gloves, threw the keys to the building with numb fingers, dropped her bag and ran up the stairs. Fiona! She could hear Margaret on the landing below, but Fiona didn't slow her pace. She reached the third floor, flung open the door of the flat, and descended into the blackness her mother had always said with flavor. The moon-fized white face from the window sailed towards her, and as she fell into the dark, Fiona recognized it as her own. The oncologist was unsure how long the tumor had been nestling against Fiona's brain, but she was certain that Fiona was a very fortunate woman. If your friend hadn't, my wife, Fiona corrected. Your wife, the oncologist smiled. If your wife hadn't insisted on a cat scan, the outcome might have been very different. As it is, I think we caught on time. Fiona stood at the sitting room window, watching the trees and growth in the gardens dip and swoop against the breeze. It had been recurring hallucinations as much as her blackout that alerted Margaret, though she still berated herself for not noticing the tumor's symptoms earlier. Silly, Fiona thought. She'd never have got such a quick diagnosis without Margaret's persistence. She smiled, remembering the uncharacteristic way Margaret had insisted on using her professional title, Dr. Gupta, and the quick responses it prompted. Fiona looked beyond the trees to Lansdowne Crescent and saw Margaret walking home, a bag of shopping in each hand. She looked lithe and strong, despite her five-plus decades, her hair tied back from her face, revealing the cheekbones that had helped to snare Fiona over 30 years ago. I am lucky, Fiona thought, and the prognosis is good. We could have another 20, even 30 years together. Some people live to 80 and beyond. Why not us? She stepped closer to the window, so Margaret could see her from the street below, waved her hand in a cheery way. Thank you.